Well, good morning, church. Continuing our worship and looking at this passage here, there was this um, psychologist, Milton Rokiek, who wrote a book called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. He described his attempts to treat three patients at a psychiatric hospital in Ypsilanti, Michigan, who suffered from delusions of grandeur. All three claimed to be Jesus. Their real names were Leon, Joseph, and Clyde. Rokiet found it difficult to break through to help these three patients accept the truth about their identity. So he tried this little experiment, and he, he put the three of them into a little community to see if rubbing against people who also claimed to be the Messiah might dent their delusion. It was a kind of messianic 12-step recovery group. They slept in beds side by side in the same room. Leon, Joseph, and Clyde ate meals at the same time and at the same table, and the three of them worked on tasks together. Well, in the end, the experiment uh, failed miserably. Leon, Joseph, and Clyde were each so convinced that they were the messiahs, so affronted by the other's claim to that status, so terrified by the prospect of themselves being merely ordinary that no amount of contrary evidence or impassioned pleading could dislodge their delusions. What endured? was the Messiah complex. In one group discussion, one of the men, Leon, announced, I am the Messiah, the Son of God, and I am on a mission. I was sent here to save the earth. Well, how do you know, psychologist Rokiak would ask. God told me, Leon replied. Clyde, one of the other patients, shot back, I never told you any such thing. <laughs> It's a crazy idea to take a group of deluded, would-be messiahs and putting them in a community to see if they could be cured. Now, let's be honest. Don't we all, to varying degrees, suffer the messiah complex? You have those moments, don't you? You, 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 That you're the only one who gets the big picture? That in your hands is the only answer? That you have it right, and if others could just see it that way, everybody would be better off. (laughs) He's walking right into this. You know, we can butt heads with each other because we're so convinced that our way is the right way. How do you know your way is the right way? God told me. I never told you any such thing. Might this be on James's mind concerning the church he is pastoring? Well, look with me at James chapter 3, James chapter 3 this morning, and our, and, and our study in James has been along the lines of a faith in action. Anyone can say they have faith, but do they show it by their deeds? Because talk is cheap. Show me. It's on that same line of thought that we come to the subject of wisdom. And the section we're looking at this morning uh, begins in verse 13, and we'll continue on really into chapter 4 down, I think, as far as verse 6. And, and I attempted to at least get into chapter 4 and take the first three verses, but, but that, I was overly ambitious there. There's no way we're getting to chapter 4 this morning. 
We'll look at just the three, uh, we'll just look at these final six verses here of chapter three. We'll pick up the rest next week. But James here is going to talk about two kinds of wisdom. There are the wise and the other than wise categories that we all fall into. And James here is really going to poke some holes in a Messiah complex, anyone thinking of himself higher than he ought. But how do you know? How do you know when you're being led by godly wisdom, heavenly wisdom, or godless earthly wisdom? I mean, how can we recognize the difference? Well, our main thought for this morning is this. True wisdom is identified by the quality of life it produces. True wisdom is identified by the quality of life it produces. And when it comes to following Jesus, the wisdom we choose matters a great deal. We need to be able to discern the difference between God's wisdom and our own. So look with me at James chapter 3. We're going to pick it up in uh, verse 13. And my first heading this morning is practical proof. Practical proof. And James 3, verse 13, I hope you're looking at it in your Bibles. James forces his readers to do a little personal examination by asking this question. Who is wise and understanding among you? And certainly the wannabe teachers of James' day would consider themselves knowledgeable and wise. They would just love to be given the chance to impress others in the church with their intellectual expertise. That they get it. That they're, they're God's gift to the church. And if the rest of the church could only just see it that way, then everything would be better. But it's something we all struggle with. We want to think of ourselves as wise. We puff ourselves up and, and, and try to act big. Well, James leans in on us to examine ourselves. Who is wise and understanding among you? He asks, come on, step right up. Let me, let me see your hand. Who's wise and understanding among you? And before anyone could raise their hand and say, oh, that, that would be me? James follows it up by saying, the end of verse 13, let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. Now, those words in the NIV, let him show it, are very strong words in the original. And they mean uh, exposed to the eyes. Exposed to the eyes. Prove it by your life. Let me see it. See, a person can stand on a soapbox and declare, I'm a wise person. I have it all figured out. If others would just listen to me. And James, standing in the crowd, listening to the self-proclaimed wise one, would say, show me. Show me. Because true wisdom, like true faith, is observable. You can be exposed to the eyes and you can see it. There ought to be some practical proof. Because anyone can say they have wisdom. But do they show it by their life? It's a very practical section here. Because we'll know a wise person when we see him or not. Not because of his degrees, but because of his deeds. Not because of professional competence, but his public conduct. If you want to determine if someone is wise, don't ask for his resume or the number of uh, uh, figures that appear on his pay stub or his grade point average. No, James says, no, no, just look at his life. A man's works, not his words, will tell you if he has this wisdom from above. 
Now, it's no accident that in, that in this section in James that it follows James's talk about talking. Because the tongue can boast all it wants about its wisdom, but the test is in the life lives. And what would be the practical proof of godly wisdom? That would let him show it by his good life, he says. And good life there means an honorable life of good conduct. Deeds, he says. Not just deeds, right? Not just deeds. Deeds done how? In humility. In humility. There's an old story told of the one-time heavyweight boxing champion of the world. Perhaps you've heard it. uh, Muhammad Ali. He was flying to one of his engagements. Now, Muhammad Ali's name had never really been synonymous with humility, especially in his prime. And so, whether this story is fact or fiction, at least makes possible such an antidote. Well, anyway, as the story goes, Muhammad Ali had taken his seat on a a 747 airplane, which was starting to taxi down the runway for takeoff. And the flight attendant walked by and and noticed that Muhammad Ali did not have on his seatbelts and said to Muhammad Ali, please fasten your seatbelt, sir. And he looked up proudly and snapped, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Without hesitation, she stared at him and said, Superman don't need no plane. (laughs) Buckle up. (laughs) Buckle up. And so the first place that we must begin If we had to walk in godly wisdom rather than our own wisdom, it's right here, it's humility. If you're starting to boast about all the wisdom you have, you gotta read this again. Humility. Alistair Begg defined humility this way. He said, humility is to have a high view of God, a sane or sober view of ourselves, and a generous view of others. It's to have a high view of God, a sane, sober view of ourselves, and a generous view of others. Who is wise and understanding among you? Don't raise your hand too quickly. Let your life show it by living an honorable life. Deeds done in humility. Because true wisdom is identified by the quality of life it produces. Now this has far-reaching uh, uh, practical implications. It's, it's not only uh, should there be some personal evaluation here, but in a way, it's a way in which we can evaluate godly teaching and godly uh, preaching. Because we can find ourselves easily drawn to preachers and teachers who kind of wow us with their teaching. And the more profound it sounds, the more we kind of gravitate toward their teaching. I had, I've had people say to me, I don't really care about his life. I just love his teaching. Listen, that may be okay for Hollywood, but not for the pulpit. We can't separate those. Do you know, you know the test in the Old Testament of, of whether or not someone was a true prophet of God or an imposter? Now, now if, you, now, if you know your Bibles, your first answer to that would be, well, if their prophecy came true, then they would be regarded as a true prophet. Well, if you answered that way, you would be half correct. You get a, you get a 50% on your grade. But check out Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. You can jot it down. You can look at it later. You can turn there now if you want. It's going to be up on the screen for you. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 3. How do we know? 
It says, if a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, it comes true, that's the 50% part that you might have correct. But get this next spot. And then he says, let us follow other gods. Let us worship them. He says, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. What is he saying? That a test of a true prophet is not only what he says, but how does he live? What is he directing you toward? You can't say, well, his teaching's really great, but, but he's really kind of messed up morally. You cannot separate those. Deuteronomy 13, don't listen to that. It's a way in which we can evaluate godly wisdom and teaching and preaching. Jesus spoke of a, of a wolf and sheep's clothing. A false teacher would be known how? By their fruits. Not just what they say, by their fruits. What fruits? Well, James gives us quite a list to help us differentiate between godly and godless earthly wisdom. Next heading, false wisdom is focused on self. False wisdom is focused on self. Now here's the direct opposite of a life of humility. That's why in verse 14 it begins with but. But if you harbor, verse 14, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. You're living a lie. And he says bitter envy. Bitter uh, means harsh. And envy in some translations say jealous or jealousy. It, it, It means to boil with heat. It's the term from which we get our word zeal. Now, most of the time you think of zeal as being good. It's a good thing if you have zeal. Sure, if it's under the control of the Lord, but if it's not under the control of the Lord, it goes sideways. That zeal becomes self-centered. It's look at me. And the wretched twin of bitter envy here is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, uh, to get it right down to the bottom shelf here, it's, it's the idea of promoting your own opinion at the exclusion of everybody else's. How do you know if you're being led by godly wisdom, heavenly wisdom, or godless earthly wisdom? Well, ask this question. Does your life revolve around what is best for you? Do you, do you live as, as though you're the points and you say, move over, uh, Leon, Clyde, and Joseph. I need a seat here. Look at me. Now, this is the age of, of, of the selfie, and you know I've picked on that before. It's okay. People love to see themselves and promote their image for the world to see. But this look at me mania was put on display at a college uh, baseball world series when two young ladies uh, rushed out onto the field to take a selfie and then later posting a video of themselves being tackled by security and earning internet fame in the process. They're while the game's going on. Now, I guess it never occurred to these two young women that the thousands of people who dropped good money to watch skilled athletes compete for a national baseball championship were not there to actually see them. (laughs) Something significant was taking place on that field, but in their minds, the field was their stage. It was their time. 
It's delusional to think you're the center of it all. Yet we do it. We pull up our seats next to Leon, Joseph, and Clyde. You see, if you have to lift yourself up in every conversation, a lot of conversation, to look better than everybody else, if you have to put someone else down to feel better about yourself, it's not godly wisdom. It's false wisdom. It's earthly wisdom. If we get resentful of anyone who threatens our territory, if we're bugged by the advantages uh, enjoyed by others, do not consider yourself wise by God's standards. I mean, where there are fights in the church or, or, or in relationships or in our marriages or at the workplace or in the halls of our schools, likely bitter envy and selfish ambition are not too far behind. And James is going to go after that next Sunday as we look at James chapter 4. But, but suffice it to say now, I, I ask you this. Do you resent... Do you resent someone in this church family because they have come between you and one of your objectives or desires? Are you resentful because of someone else's advantage you wish for yourself? Church, deal with that. Don't don't harbor that. It's going to eat you up inside and it's going to point you in an opposite direction than, than God's ways. See, anyone claiming to be wise yet harbors these things in their heart, they are living a lie, it says. It's an empty boast. And then James in verse 15 now, he identifies the origin of man's wisdom. Look at verse 15. This is where it comes from. He says, such wisdom, in the NIV, uh, supplies quotes around the word wisdom, maybe. But such wisdom does not come down from heaven. It is earthly. That means it's of the world, it's godless, it's totally separated from heaven. Not only is it, un, not only is it earthly, it's unspiritual, meaning natural. You don't really have a clue what God wants. And it gets worse. And he says it's of the devil. It's of the devil. <laughs> What's the devil like? Well, all these things James just described. Envious, self-seeking, boastful, pride. Uh, proud, uh, against the truth, living a lie. I mean, do we really want to live in a way that could be endorsed by Satan himself? I mean, is your pattern of thinking as of late, is is it applauded by Satan? I mean, you ever thought of it that way? Focus on self is harmful to others. It will take us down. And James says in verse 16, this is where it's going. For where you, where you have envy and selfish ambition, you find what? Disorder and every evil practice. Work this one backwards. If there's disorder and every evil practice, because God's a God of order, not chaos. If, you, if there's order, disorder and every evil practice, work that back and go, well, where's that coming from? Likely selfish ambition and bitter envy. Now, the word disorder is where we get our word anarchy. Anarchy. It produces anarchy. Earthly wisdom leads to chaos. 
Is it not the very reason we are in the mess we are in as a country? Now, I'm not trying to get political here because it's not the point. It's a mess. It's as they would say during World War II, it's a snafu, which stood for situation normal, all fouled up. That's what that means. Or as they say in the Pentagon, Pentagon, FUB, F-U-B-B, which is the acronym for fouled up beyond belief. That's where human wisdom gets us, right there. That's why we're in the mess we're in. And like human wisdom that that built the Tower of Babel, it only ended in confusion and disorder. So James says will be the case when we're driven by envy and selfish ambition. I really appreciate what Pastor Dan said earlier about, you know, these big structures and all these things that we think are really, really big. Like the Tower of Babel. Look what I did. This is beautiful. And God came down to look at it. And I have a feeling he said, that puny thing right there, that's what you're talking about is your achievement? Maybe. Now, I know our minds, and I've already set it up this way, they go immediately to the world stage, and it definitely applies to that. But I don't want to leave the personal application too quickly here. Let's bring it close to home. Because the presence of envy and selfish ambition, listen, church, it destroys the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It harms. It ruins true fellowship. And and to bring it home, continually bring it home to our own lives. If our lives, if your life is in constant chaos, then you need to work that back. Because it may just be because you're operating by your own wisdom. See, we edge God out of this, we edge God out of that, and we wonder, why are we in such a mess? See, whatever does not come from God is destined to fail even if it has some short-term success. And so we have to ask, are we settling for earthly wisdom, our own human ingenuity? Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, Isaiah says. I think it's 521. Check it out. False wisdom focuses on self. Third heading this morning is pure wisdom focuses on others. Pure wisdom focuses on others. You can see at the pace that I'm going why I did not include chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 or 3. I know you're all thankful for that. Verse 17, how do we know we're being led by godly wisdom? Here we go, verse 17. But, direct opposite of what, he just, what we just saw, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. This is heavenly wisdom. It's wisdom from, that comes down from above. It's the same word that Jesus used with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Born from above. Coming down from above. Same words. And this is the wisdom right here that he talks about that we need in the church. That we need from our pulpits. That we need at our meetings. We need in our decision making and our, our discussions. And working through problems and in hoping for spiritual outcomes. James says... This godly wisdom from above is, first of all, it's pure. It's pure. That means a life free of contamination. It's undefiled. It's an unmixed devotion. 
It's to fear God, really, as Proverbs tells us at the beginning of wisdom. Purity is the motivation for divine wisdom. Purity is the key, I believe, to all the other qualities of wisdom to follow. It's the starting place for attaining wisdom. It's, first of all, pure. And then I want you to go to the last word in this list for a moment, because this is how I see it. You can check it out for yourself. But the last word there is the word sincere. Literally, that word means without a trace of hypocrisy. That I I don't act one way on Sunday and then another on, on Monday. As a country singer put it, he's a walking contradiction, partly truth and partly fiction. Not shouldn't be said of one who claims to follow Christ. A true, truly wise person, he doesn't play act. He, he is what he says he is. In other words, what you see is what you get. We're not two-faced. And I couldn't help myself but to think of uh, an incident that's told about Abraham Lincoln. He wasn't known for his good looks, right? But he was known for his wit and sense of humor. And once he was accused of being two-faced, and he replied, if I had two faces, would I be wearing this one? <laughs> that's a good line. Well, the problem with being two-faced is we forget which one's the real face after a while. How do you know you're being led by godly wisdom? You're sincere, which I believe is closely related to the word pure that James listed first. Again, I see him as, as bookends of purity and sincerity that frame the list of positive qualities of godly wisdom. And he mentions, James mentions peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial. And I ask, what do all those words have in common? They all speak to how we relate to others. They they have an outward focus. Contrast that to what we just saw in the previous uh, verses about godless earthly wisdom. What do the characters of earthly wisdom have in common? (laughs) They're focused on ourselves. They're, They're about my needs, my desires. See, a sure sign then which wisdom is guiding us by asking, who's benefiting from this wisdom? Our own good or the good of others? Now, there's not to say there's no personal benefit or satisfaction when we minister to someone else, but what's driving us to do what we do? Personal gain or others' gain? Church, if it isn't, this wisdom isn't worked out in your relationships, You're not wise, but otherwise. Now, let me briefly touch on each of the qualities mentioned here. You can do your own research on this another time. But it says pure godly wisdom is peace-loving. Its opposite would be quarrelsome. That comes from envy and selfish ambition. James mentions another quality that comes from true wisdom. It's considerate, he says. That, that the, the meaning here suggests being fair and generous in dealings with other people. It's to give others the benefit of the doubt. How well do you do in that area? Ouch. Then we come to the word submissive. Submissive. Just hearing that word kind of makes you cringe, doesn't it? Everything inside, I don't want to have to submit to you. Now, the word James uses here is very interesting for the word submissive. It means yield to persuasion. One who's wise is willing to listen to someone else's reason and counsel and to someone else's perspective. 
It isn't saying we have our feet planted in midair when it comes to what we believe and that we have no convictions. It means I'm open to listening to someone else's viewpoint rather than be stubborn and say, no, 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 I know better than you. You're not going to teach me anything here. No, it's to be willing to be persuaded by something that is good and, and best. And so I pause here and I ask the question, When you come into different situations and into meetings, do you go into those situations with your mind already made up? You kind of sit there with your arms folded, rigid and tight, unwilling to really listen to what someone else's might have to say, and you go, go ahead, I'm not going to listen to you anyway. At least your body language is saying that. You see, the more rigid we are, the less hope there is for a successful resolution of a conflict. We'll be fleshing that out some more next week. But the question is, how rigid are you? Is there a situation right now that's calling for you to be teachable and open to someone else's point of view? Being submissive, that's wise. He goes on to say, full of mercy. Uh, James already hit on this in chapter 2. That my lives are messy, but, but it's entering into the messiness and show people mercy that points people to the mercy of God, as we sang about a few minutes ago. And wisdom from above is also described as full of good fruit. And he'll speak of this good fruit as he summarizes all of this in verse 18 in a moment. But the thought here is that we are to be led, if we're led by the wisdom from above, it will lead to every sort of good work and deed. Our fruits will show for it. And then James mentions that one of the qualities, the last one here on the list, is, is, is impartial. James spent chapter 2 speaking on impartiality. We're not to show favoritism and play favorites and and judge other people based on outward appearances. So we ask here then, how do I know I'm being led by godly, heavenly wisdom? Answer, it's seen in how we relate to others. Is the good of others what drives me? Is my focus outward or is it inward focused? Because true wisdom is identified by the quality of life it produces. Dallas Willard said this, what matters is not the accomplishments you achieve, but the person you become. Just characterize your life. Well, James taps it all off uh, with a summary statement, verse 18, that transitions nicely into next week. The NIV, it says, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. You see, there's a harvest of righteousness available to us in this lifetime. There's a way we can live right with God, and there's a way we can live right with others. How? It's one who's known to sow peace. And by the way, and again, I'm sure we'll come back to this next week, when it speaks of peace, this doesn't mean avoidance of conflict. Some figure That as long as they can deny reality or walk away from every problem and crisis, then that's wisdom. Not so. Reminds me of the story of a couple who just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. And someone asked the husband the secret of their longevity as a couple. Well, the old man drawled, the wife and I had this agreement when we first got married. It went like this. When she was bothered about something, she'd just tell me and get it off her chest. And if I was upset with her about something, I went off and took a long walk. 
He says, I suppose you could attribute our happy marriage to the fact that I have largely led an outdoor life. <laughs> Not bad. I mean, there are times, there are times that we need to take a walk from a situation. Yes, some of us would do well to do that at times. But James is not recommending a peace that depends on walking away from conflict. We mustn't avoid conflict. It isn't peacekeeping at all costs that James is after, but being a peacemaker that works through the conflict to a healthy resolution. So it would do well for us to ask right here, am I a promoter of peace? Or am I disruptive to peace? Are you a peacemaker or troublemaker? Wise, otherwise. If peacemakers over here and troublemakers over there, where are you on this continuum? Which one best describes you? Peacemaker, troublemaker. Who is wise and understanding among you? Wait, James says. Don't answer that. What would others say? (laughs) How does it it seem to those around you? Do others view your life and say, that's a man, that's a woman, that's a young person who has godly, heavenly wisdom. Because true wisdom is identified by the quality of life it produces. See, it isn't the apple in the tree that makes the tree an apple tree, right? No. That apple shows us it's an apple tree. Fruit doesn't make the tree what it is. It reveals what the tree is. The fruit doesn't make us. The fruit reveals us. What are others seeing in your life? And in my life, as of late, where's the stack up? You lost in your own pain or carrying another's pain? Are you focused on your own hurt or coming alongside of, of someone else who's hurting? You focus on self or focus on others? I mean, is there any Leon, Joseph, and Clyde in me? There was this young uh, musician. She was substituting for the principal clarinet in the Chicago Symphony. And wanting to make a very good first impression, she prepared her music carefully. She memorized all the hard passages. And and when the time came to take her place for her first rehearsal, I mean, she played her heart out, dramatically moving with the music, waving her clarinet expressively as she played And there was a pause in the rehearsal. She smiled at the player sitting next to her. But he frowned at her and said, we don't do that here. We don't do that here. in In the Chicago Symphony, the focus is on the music, not the drama. Focus is not on you. It's on what you play. You're making it all about you. James would say, we don't do that here. Pastor Brian would say, and to myself, we don't do that here. We don't do that here. It's not part of who we are. As followers of Christ, let's put him at the center. All the other stuff, it's of the devil. 
Let's put him at the center. Let's make him the point and focus on the beautiful music that comes from putting on the character of Christ. Because it's his life flowing through us that makes beautiful music. Not what we all think it is in putting ourselves at the center, right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. First pass, it seems, not sure how we're going to bring this down to a very practical level, but really with James and how you're using James to write these words down. It's really not that hard. He puts it on the bottom shelf for us. He puts it where, where life is lived. He puts faith on the front lines. And so I thank you for this example here we have of true wisdom versus false wisdom. And may we, may we measure ourselves up against it, not just in the flesh, but to really ask the harder question, how is Jesus Christ living his life out through me? So just attaching these things on this list, checking off the boxes. Working on one and then go to the other. No, it's about Christ living in us. And as we close with a song of trust you, Jesus, it's really about that. Am I going to trust you that you have the wisdom to guide my life? Am I going to trust you with the direction of my life and my ways that can be matched up with your ways? Or am I going to try to do it myself, boast of that, and fall flat on my face. God, help us to grow in the area of trusting you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.